Paige Fortna is the Harold Brown Professor of U.S. Foreign and Security Policy at Columbia University. She's the author of two books, the first title, Peacetime, Ceasefire Agreements and the Doability of Peace. Her second book, Does Peacekeeping Work? Shaping Belligerent's Choices After Civil War, investigates the number, size, and scope of peacemaking missions that are deployed in the aftermath of civil wars. Her research has appeared in leading international relations journals, including International Organization, World Politics, International Studies Quarterly, and the International Studies Review. Page's research combines both fieldwork and quantitative methods, draws on a variety of theoretical perspectives, and focuses on policy-relevant research. Her most recent work explores the role of terrorism in civil wars. I invited Paige to the Dean's Table to discuss what her experience has been in researching terrorism via field research, the policy implications of her findings, and her work on gender equity in the discipline of political science. Welcome to the Dean's Table, Paige. Thanks, Fred. So Paige, when I was an undergraduate, I majored in political science because I thought I wanted to be a civil rights attorney. You were an undergraduate at Wesleyan. How did you come to deciding on pursuing a Ph.D. focused on international relations? I got interested in international relations and conflict and the things that I study now way, way back. I give credit or blame, I'm not sure which, (laughs) to my parents. My Uh father was an academic, Mm -hmm. and he was a a religion professor, New Testament uh, scholar. Episcopalian. Yep, yep. So we traveled when he was on sabbatical, and we traveled... When I was three and when I was 10, we lived mm-hmm. in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, in oh, wow. occupied West Bank. And then when I was a senior in high school, we spent a year in South Africa. He taught at a black mm. seminary in South Africa. This was under apartheid. So I had these experiences you know, every seven years living in a conflict zone. So even though I wasn't at all interested in politics when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. once I got to college, I was very interested in international travel, international history, international politics, and I found political science and international relations mm-hmm. as a set of classes that I could continue those interests in international things in general right. and conflict in particular. So that's kind of how I got uh-huh. to studying political science as an undergrad. Uh-huh. And then I had an undergraduate mentor, Martha Crenshaw, who oh. um, was uh, just a really inspiring teacher and mm-hmm. She really encouraged me to think mm-hmm. about graduate school, and and I guess being an academic kid, it was you know it was mm-hmm. a career choice that wasn't a mystery. It was kind of on my radar as something that I might think about doing. So then, with some encouragement as an undergrad, that's why I went the route that I went. Also, I believe I read somewhere that you worked at a think tank mm-hmm. devoted to the study of international relations after college. Yeah, so t- for two years after, I was pretty sure I wanted to get a PhD, but uh-huh. I was also thinking a little bit about maybe a policy mm-hmm. career, and so. Partly on Martha Crenshaw's advice to sort of take a break from school and make sure before I went into a Ph.D. that I really wanted to do that and then also to kind of explore the policy world. I went and worked at the Henry Stimson Center in D.C., which Uh is a very small, then especially, it's a little bigger now, but it was a Mm -hmm. tiny little think tank. So I did, you know, entry-level stuff. I did everything from answering the phones Uh to doing real research. It was a nice exploration of the think tank world and... I learned a ton there, but I also realized that the kind of research I wanted to do, I wanted to do more kind of academic rigorous research that was still policy relevant, but that wasn't driven by policy conclusions that you thought somebody wanted you to reach. (laughs) So So what's funny about that, we had a similar experience. Of course, I wasn't interested, at least as an academic interest in international relations, but 
I, too, spent two years at the college in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. the think tank. It was then called the Joint Center for Political Studies, mm-hmm. and it was a think tank focused on domestic issues related to civil rights. Yeah. And my experience there for two years sort of uh, led me to believe that, oh, I think I don't want to so much do policy-specific. I want to do more of work focused on the rigor of the study of politics. And mm-hmm. so it led me there. But I think I came back to the policy relevant part later in my career. But this is about you and not <laughs> me. <laughs> so um, my other question is, is that could you say a little bit about what your experience was at Harvard when you were in graduate school? How did you come to focus on studying specifically peacemaking and terrorism? Yeah, so I wasn't really focused on terrorism at that point yet, ironically, because Martha Crenshaw, my undergraduate advisor, is a terrorism expert. But at that point, I wasn't really focused on that at all. I was at Harvard. My advisor was Bob Cohen, Hmm. who's a mostly international political economy scholar, but studying theoretical questions around international cooperation. And I was interested in security questions, conflict kinds of questions. But it seemed to me that there was a way to pull the theory that was mostly being applied to international questions of economic cooperation, um, pull those to the study of cooperation on the security field. So I was kind of drawn to those theories, Mm -hmm. but in the subject matter that at that time was dominated by realism. This was at the height of what Mm -hmm. in IR we refer to as the ism wars, the realists versus the you know, institutionalists versus the constructivists. So mm-hmm. the theory debates were big. Right. Thankfully, we have moved past right. those. Now, for <laughs> our listeners way. who may not know, could you just briefly tell us what is realism? Yeah, so, I mean, very briefly, realism is a theory of international politics that really focuses on power and is quite pessimistic about, mm-hmm. in general, pessimistic about the ability of states to cooperate. Mm-hmm. Institutionalism talks about the ways in which international institutions can be set up to overcome some of the obstacles to cooperation. Mm-hmm. And so my advisor, Bob Cohen, was kind of a leaning proponent of the mm-hmm. institutionalist you know, wing th- at the height of those wars. So for me, it was kind of taking these theoretical debates and then applying them to a set of questions that, from my own life experience and for policy reasons, I was more interested in than the ones on the economic side, which were less interesting to me personally. Right. So your first book, Peacetime, Ceasefire Agreements and the Durability of of Peace, that book explores why some ceasefire agreements last for years while others are Mm -hmm. short-lived. Tell us what you discovered in that study. What are the best ways for peace to be maintained in the aftermath of wars? Yeah, so this was kind of building on these institutionalist ideas about how states that maybe want to cooperate but have trouble cooperating Mm -hmm. can do so. So I was looking at states that were deadly enemies by definition. They'd been fighting a war, and then they come to some end to the war, some sort of agreement, and they have to try to craft something that will make that peace stick. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I looked at a number of mechanisms having to do with the agreement themselves, how Mm -hmm. specific the agreement was, and then also more concrete things. Was there a demilitarized zone set up? Was there a peacekeeping mission put in place? Mm -hmm. Were there conflict resolution mechanisms? Kind of like institution, with a small I, institution Mm -hmm. building between former enemies to try to make peace stick. And then the book is about evaluating whether they work. So I guess... I don't know if it was the most surprising thing to me, but you know, the idea at the time, particularly from realists, was that peace agreements are just scraps of paper. They don't really mean anything. And so right. I was kind of trying to flesh out how they can mean something mm-hmm. if they are institutionalized to some extent. 
What does your second book, Does Peacekeeping Work, focus on? The second one, Does Peacekeeping Work, on one specific aspect of how to make peace last. Right. Um, but, but in that case, looking at civil wars instead of wars between states. So could you tell me, does that involve rebels? Yeah. So the, right. so the first book came out of my dissertation. And when I started it, I mm-hmm. thought I was going to look at all kinds of wars, wars between states, civil wars within states. And then that quickly became obvious that was just too big empirically to do in one project. So I kind of split it apart. And mm-hmm. then the first book was about interstate wars mm-hmm. and peace agreements, and looking at peacekeeping as part of that, but just one right. part of that. Then in the second book, I picked up the study of civil conflicts right. and focused just on this one mechanism of peacekeeping. So it was a right. different set of cases, but you know the theory behind it is, mm-hmm. is quite similar. Okay. So both scholars and rebels or rebel groups have different ideas of what constitutes terrorism, mm-hmm. right? So... How do you define terrorism? Yeah, okay, so this is now moving on to the third project, which is the right. the book that isn't yet. Right. <laughs> this is the book I'm right. working on now. So I got into the study of terrorism a little bit accidentally, and actually mm-hmm. here I can I can give credit or blame again back to Martha Crenshaw because, oh. you know, she, when she left Wesleyan, there was a bit of a feshrift panel for her at mm-hmm. APSA, at the American Political Science Association mm-hmm. meetings. And I didn't study terrorism, but I studied civil wars. I was in the midst of this project on peacekeeping, looking at a lot of different civil wars and rebel groups and governments. And I knew that a lot of terrorism mm-hmm. happened in the context of civil war. So I wrote a paper for this panel honoring her mm-hmm. that was supposed to be just a little side project for me. Right. But I realized in that project that looking at civil wars as a kind of set of cases, a universe of cases in which to study terrorism was really fruitful. So that paper then Mm -hmm. was the germ that turned into this big project I've been working on for a long time now. And is this the case study, the cases of 104 rebel groups that you've looked at? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, okay, so now to get to your question about definition of terrorism. So I'm studying terrorism in the context of civil wars. Mm -hmm. There's variation in the use of terrorism. Some rebel groups use this tactic Mm-hmm. Not at all. Some use mm-hmm. it some, some use it a lot, some it varies over time how much they use it. So I needed a definition of terrorism that was, um, there are tons and tons of definitions of terrorism. There are almost mm-hmm. as many definitions of terrorism as there are scholars of terrorism. Right. It's a kind of a problem in the right. field that there's not a consensus. Do you have a unique is. perspective on, on? I don't know if it's unique. I think I have a perspective that's useful for the research project I'm working on and mm-hmm. I think is helpful in trying to remove some of the loaded, I mean, it's always going to be a loaded term, Mm -hmm. but I wanted a definition of terrorism that wasn't actors we don't like, (laughs) right? That if we don't like them or we don't like what they're fighting for, we call them terrorists. And if Mm -hmm. we do like what they're fighting for, we call them freedom fighters. I didn't didn't want that. That's my next question. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So so the definition is narrower Mm -hmm. than some. It's a deliberate use of indiscriminate violence against civilians. So Mm. The pieces that are important of that are that it's indiscriminate violence, mm-hmm. which separates it from something that almost all rebel groups and almost all governments do in civil wars, which is target specific people mm-hmm. who they think are collaborating with the other side or to try to get them to collaborate. So that that's most of the violence against civilians mm-hmm. in civil wars. But it's not what we think of really as like mm-hmm. quintessential terrorism. Um, and if I defined it that way, there'd be no variation, right? All rebel groups do that and mm-hmm. governments. So it's indiscriminate violence, and it's deliberately indiscriminate. So it's not like, oh, we meant to kill this person, but by mistake we killed these other people because we couldn't tell mm-hmm. who was collaborating with us and who wasn't. This is like you know, blowing up buses, marketplaces, where the point is that mm-hmm. random civilians 
will get killed as a way of instilling fear in mm-hmm. the population. The issue of the sort of freedom fighter versus terrorist, I, yeah. I try really hard to, to have the definition be based on the kinds of tactics that a group uses tactics. and not what they're fighting for. So, so that's how you parse out the difference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you could be using terrorism for a good cause mm-hmm. or a bad cause. You could be fighting for a terrible cause so and not know. use terrorism by this definition, right? Mm-hmm. So that what you're fighting for mm-hmm. and how you're fighting, that's the distinction I'm trying so to make. So the perceptions of, of elites or decision makers, it doesn't matter if the predominant view is that they are freedom fighters or... No. So so to take an example, the mm-hmm. ANC, mm-hmm. African National exactly. Congress in South Africa, right. fighting for a cause that I you know, mm-hmm. believe was a just cause. Mm-hmm. They didn't use a lot of terrorism, mm-hmm. but they did sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, blow people up randomly. Mm-hmm. And so in that, so that gets called terrorism, even though they were also, you can be both a freedom fighter and a terrorist under this definition. Right. Yeah. Right. So I want to go back a bit um, because it's interesting that you used the ANC example. So where were you in South Africa? So we spent some of the time in Cape Town, uh-huh. but most of the time we lived in what was then one of the homelands in the Transkei in a oh, town really? called Umtata. Yeah. Okay. Was there? Did you see or experience any political violence while you were there? Uh, not, um, it was around and... Um, but at a bit of a distance. So mm-hmm. uh, there were times when we went into some of the townships and mm-hmm. you could see that there had, you know, you could see burn marks from where things had been burning. Mm-hmm. And there was definitely a sort of sense of of fear. Yeah. Um, and Desmond Tutu, who right. was not yet archbishop, but was then bishop, right. he was the bishop of the diocese where the mm-hmm. seminary that my dad taught mm-hmm. at um, was. So he came and visited um, I, I like to say Desmond Tutu slept in my bed. <laughs> I slept in the study while okay. he slept in my bed, but he visited okay. us. And when he came, you know, he had to be spirited away afterwards in an un, that there was like three cars and it was hidden which car he was going to be in. So you remember was, all these details? Yeah, this was when I was 17. So, yeah, I remember. Oh. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You weren't fearful or about being there, knowing what was happening? I'm suspecting this is doing... The height of the anti-apartheid movement? Yeah, this was the height of the anti-apartheid movement. I was not fearful there. So partly there was not a lot of violence in the trans guy itself. Um, So we were reading about it, and people at home were really worried Mm -hmm. about us because they were reading about all this violence, but it was not really close to where we were. And the people who were in danger were not, you know, Mm -hmm. white Americans. It was, you know, Desmond Tutu was in danger, and, Mm -hmm. you know, but... One thing that was interesting in that case was that there were places, I talked about going into the townships, mm-hmm. my mom and I could go in, mm-hmm. and my dad was advised not to because people would assume that as a white male yeah, that right. he was, you know, security, he was South African security forces so that he might have been a target. Okay. But mm-hmm. my mom and I, so there was, you know, there were some places that we could go that he couldn't. Right. So I guess in retrospect, maybe that was like, there's a little bit of a feeling of danger, but I never felt personally in danger at all. Well, this is a, a nice point to transition because just this year you were in Sri Lanka mm-hmm. and doing field research. Yep. You were on a research sabbatical. And on April 21st, 2019, there was a violent attack that erupted there mm-hmm. in Sri Lanka. What was your initial reactions? Yeah. Um, um, so this was... Uh, this was interesting because I was there studying terrorism, right. and this was an act of terrorism, but it mm-hmm. wasn't by the group that I, I was studying the civil war that was already over by mm-hmm. the Tamil Tigers of 
that who you know a defunct group so it mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't the case i was studying but the mm-hmm. the thing that i studied happened mm-hmm. so when it happened i think this is often the case when you're in a place the way it kind of unfolds feels very different than when you're reading about it from afar right so mm-hmm. we, tons of outpouring of emails and phone calls of people making sure we were okay because people knew we were in Sri Lanka and they knew there was this attack in Sri Lanka. But from where we were, we were in our apartment. It was Easter morning. Right. We were planning to go to a hotel for Easter brunch. Mm-hmm. And we I got an alert on my phone that something had happened and I started, you know, looking for, you know, trying to find out more about what happened and started and the news kind of trickled out that some churches had been attacked and some hotels had been attacked. Mm-hmm. And we had a little debate, like, should we Mm -hmm. hunker down and stay home? Should we still go to this hotel where we're going to go to the brunch? I called the hotel. Is brunch still on? They said, yeah, it's going to be less of a big deal. They they planned, like, a big Easter brunch. And there'll be security. You won't be able to drive right upside. But, yeah, Mm -hmm. you can come. So we went, which, in retrospect, either was really idiotic because we (laughs) went to a hotel of the type that of the hotels that had been targeted, mm-hmm. or it was perfectly fine because at that point the security forces had already come and rounded up everybody and there really wasn't mm-hmm. a threat anymore. So we didn't feel personally unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, the country then really shut once, as the implications of the attack kind of came out, the, the mm-hmm. country shut down for two weeks. So we were kind of stuck, like mm-hmm. kids, end of two weeks of mm-hmm. spring break for, the, for my two daughters and... Mm-hmm. And the school was closed for two more weeks, so we, we were we were highly inconvenienced. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't feel we didn't feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about the security situation there, the biggest threat to us we felt like would be like coming around the corner and stumbling on violence that was so. This was an attack by a, a very small mm-hmm. fringe uh, Muslim group, mm-hmm. but the reaction to it, there was a lot of anti-Muslim violence by the Sinhalese uh, majority, right? So mm-hmm. sort of taking revenge on people. So that we were like, okay, let's be a little bit careful. Mm-hmm. What kind of neighborhoods we're in? Something mm-hmm. might get ugly, kind of mm-hmm. um, unexpectedly right. in that in that sense. Um, and and I saw some of that, not not the actual violence, but you know, driving through places where. Shops had been ransacked the night before, and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did it impact your research at all, or or did it even yeah. illustrate or enhance or change your view about what was going on on the ground while you were after this? Yeah, incident? yeah. So it changed. Um, it was very, as I said, it wasn't the case I was studying mm-hmm. specifically, right. but it, it it was very interesting to see a country that had had a long experience with terrorism mm-hmm. and thought it had put it behind it then have this other attack. And it, it was almost like the country has PTSD and like mm-hmm. the reminder mm-hmm. of the insecurity during the from during the war. There was, in my view, really like from an outsider who hadn't been through that, it felt like the country was really overreacting. Mm-hmm. But people had all these fears from what it had been like before and feeling like, oh, God, we're going back to that again. So it was kind of understandable that that people people didn't trust the government when the government said it's safe to have schools reopen they didn't believe it they kept their kids home so mm-hmm. that seeing those dynamics was really interesting for me not not stuff that was like specifically directly related to what i was studying about why the tamil tigers had used terrorism but just seeing mm-hmm. how it played out mm-hmm. um, and then it also affected my research in that first of all i couldn't do any research for two weeks because everybody just stayed home i couldn't mm-hmm. do interviews um, and then People were, um, there were some kinds of, you know, 
some of the interviews and I was hoping to get a survey mm-hmm. off the ground and people thought this is not a good time to be asking mm-hmm. anything about these topics. Having a survey would mean, you know, strangers showing up in a town and asking questions. That, let's, let's, not, let's not do that right now. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of this dampening on the ability to do some of what I was doing. So mm-hmm. in some ways it was really enlightening and in some ways it kind of hampered my research. But Right. Yeah. Is this the longest period you ever have been in the field yeah. based on your research? Yeah. Or? So for my first book, I didn't do field work. I was mm-hmm. a you know, starving grad student <laughs> right. um, and studying cases where it would have been really hard to get people to talk to me. The second project, I did very short stints, mm-hmm. like two to three weeks in each of three cases, mm-hmm. just like hit the ground, do a ton of interviews, and but not get the real mm-hmm. feel of a place that you can get. So to be someplace for, you mm-hmm. know, for nine months to really, really sink into it. Right. Um, So how is the the field research different from the previous work you've done, Mm -hmm. which is more, I wouldn't say empirical-based because it's all empirical. but more more quantitative. quantitative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in my view, they're they're really important complements because there's stuff, when you're in a particular case, you can into great depth and you can understand lots and lots of nuance, but it's Mm -hmm. easy to lose the big picture of how this case compares to Mm -hmm. others or how, whether this case is an unusual case or a typical case. So I'd done a lot of the quantitative stuff first. I had this Mm -hmm. kind of big picture and then Mm -hmm. I wanted to do a deep dive. Mm -hmm. So I think there are things that you can learn from the quantitative stuff that you Mm -hmm. can't learn in the field and there's stuff Mm -hmm. you can learn in the field that you can't learn sitting in a computer. But I think especially studying political violence, this is that, you know, it's a, the human element of it is easy to lose track of when you're sitting at your computer, like, you know, crunching numbers. You forget that, like, you're tallying up attacks and how many people Mm -hmm. are killed. And when you're there, you're like, oh, right, Right. those were people killed who had families. And, you know, that, that kind of larger implication stuff hits you in a way that is important. And this will be a book, right? hope so. <laughs> right. Do you think you'll tell the story? I don't want to call it story because yeah. we're social scientists. We don't do fictional <laughs> work. But the way that you present the work will be different because you've had far more context in living the experience, not direct experience, yeah. but in, in the country. Yeah, I think so. I know that there are things that I've learned by being mm-hmm. there that I couldn't have learned without mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm. Um, and those will come through in the book. And some of them are things that now, you know, they're things that happened in the Sri Lankan war or that mattered for the use of terrorism in that case that people, you know, repeatedly told me were important. And now I want to go see if they're important in other places too. So Mm -hmm. there's kind of a, you know, theory building or hypothesis generating aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But things I definitely wouldn't have learned if I hadn't been there. So in in that direct sense, yes, there, Mm -hmm. there will definitely be things in the book that, and, uh, you know, my answers will be different because I was there. This is something I kind of grapple with in Mm -hmm. my own work as a positivist social scientist Mm -hmm. who, you know, we put a lot of premium on being, you know, objective and neutral and 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 kind of dehumanizing what we study in a lot of ways. And Mm -hmm. being in the field, as I just said, it really humanizes things. So how to deal with that in the book? Like, do I I think a lot of people sort of put stuff in the preface Mm -hmm. that talks about their own experience. um, And then the book, they just go back into like objective mm-hmm. positivist mode. Mm-hmm. I think there's some that feels like it can feel like a kind of artificial separation between these two modes. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't doing proper ethnography or using real interpretivist methods. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to figure out how to balance that and how to talk about things about my perspective as, you know, a white professor at a 
prestigious American university mm-hmm. studying this conflict, how that mm-hmm. made the people I was talking to, both elites I was interviewing and then, you know, sort of ordinary people I was interacting with, mm-hmm. how that shaped what they might have told me or not told me or how they reacted to me. So I'm trying to be sensitive to some of those things mm-hmm. that come from more interpretivist uh, methodologies mm-hmm. um, while still retaining the, like, thinking about this in terms of hypothesis testing and, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things as a more positivist social mm-hmm. scientist. Yeah. One of the most fascinating things about your work, uh, at least that I think is fascinating, mm-hmm. is that it's solution-driven. Um, mm-hmm. It provides some answers. And, you know, as political scientists, we're great at describing things mm-hmm. and not necessarily prone to giving solutions based mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. what we find. In an essay on terrorism written in the Atlantic magazine, you're quoted as saying, and here's the quote, don't overestimate the potential for success of groups that use terrorism. That is, don't let the boogeyman of terrorism lead to the overestimation of their military capabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you say more about what you meant about that? Yeah, yeah. So this this is a finding that comes out of um, an article on the effectiveness of terrorism. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of the first piece of this project that I tackled. And what I find in that study is that rebel groups who use terrorism do not do very well in their mm-hmm. wars. They're much less likely to win their wars outright. In fact, in the set of cases I was looking at, uh, they never win their wars outright, the mm-hmm. groups that use terrorism. They're less likely to you know, get the government to concede and get a negotiated settlement that gives them some of what they're fighting for. They're more likely to be defeated. Mm. So in terms of achieving their political goals, it's not an effective mm-hmm. mechanism. The literature at the time kind of said the opposite, that this right. is a technique that's used because it's effective. And I think that adds to the scariness of it, right? If you think right. not only is this going to kill people randomly, but it's also going to work. And these, mm-hmm. these you know horrible people who use those horrible methods are going to win. That kind of adds to this notion of... Um, you know, we have to go all out in the war on terror mm-hmm. and counterterrorism is super important. Right. And, you know, we have to take draconian measures. measures right. And, you know, turns out, no, it's not a particularly effective method because it alienates people and it doesn't generally degrade the military forces mm-hmm. of the other side. So it, it's it's not good for doing things that rebel groups are trying to do. I think there's been, you know, since 9-11 in the U.S. and in the West, there's been this, you know, Counterterror has become the, you know, the most important kind of security mm-hmm. policy, and I think a lot of that is is overblown because there's this sense that these people are more powerful than they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, but in your work, how do you go about evaluating the effectiveness of terrorism? Yeah. So in that paper, again, this is looking at terrorism in the context of civil war. So yeah. I look at a whole set of civil wars. That paper is mm-hmm. purely quantitative paper, looking at a whole set of civil wars and how they ended. Did they end with the government winning? Mm-hmm. Did they end with the rebels winning? Did they end with a negotiated solution, which is kind of a second best outcome from the rebels' perspective to get the government to concede? Governments are, are defending the status quo. Rebels are trying to change it. So if there's a negotiated settlement, it's usually moving things towards the rebels' position. Did the war kind of fizzle out with the rebel group not totally defeated but kind of no longer causing trouble? Or is it an ongoing war? Mm-hmm. So I kind of put those on a spectrum from government victory on one side to rebel victory on the other side. And then I won't bore mm-hmm. you or our listeners with the details of the statistical model, but mm-hmm. looking at how the use of terrorism, controlling for a bunch of other things, 
whether it makes rebels more likely to end up on the more successful end of that continuum or the less successful end of that continuum, and they end up on the less successful end of that continuum. Let's see. Well, that's, that's interesting. So I want to shift gears a, a, yeah, sure. a minute, and I want to talk about equity issues in the discipline, mm-hmm. our discipline of political science. As you know, the discipline as is occurring within the academy more widely is reckoning with the issues of, of equity, yeah. um, gender equity to be more specific. Now, you've been vocal about the challenges that women face in the profession. Mm-hmm. You were, I have to say, excellent on this issue as the chair of the political Thanks. science department here at Columbia. But you've also served on the American Political Science Association's task force on women's advancement in the profession. Mm-hmm. The report titled, Would I Do This All Over Again? Mid-Career Voices in Political Science, came out just this year. Now, the committee conducted in-depth interviews with a select cohort of Ph.D. students, both men and women, who were in three graduate programs in political science during the 1990s Mm -hmm. who are currently now mid-career. The report identified key factors shaping the choices at critical junctures in women's careers and highlights the constraints that inform how women and men experience the profession at all stages, including initial decisions to even pursue a Ph.D., as we've talked about Mm -hmm. uh, earlier in your case, uh, their experience in graduate school and on the job market. I found many of the narratives in that report to be really gripping, and I've read others in other disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many of these stories of women who are experiencing challenges within the discipline. Why do you feel there was a need to have such a report? Mm. So, you know, I think the numbers of people who've been studying political science as undergrads and even mm-hmm. going on to grad school, it's been relatively gender balanced for a long time, mm-hmm. but we still don't have gender balance within you know, professorial ranks and especially post-tenure and full professor. So, so we know that there's a leaky pipeline, right? People, mm-hmm. women are dropping out, women and minorities are dropping out more mm-hmm. than white men. So we have those numbers, and there have been some studies, you know, some quantitative studies looking at this. And when we started, the co-authors of this report and I, who we were on this sort mm-hmm. of sub-task force of the larger APSET task force, we were thinking about, well, how could we get at this leaky pipeline problem to try to understand it? Because I think there's a lot of speculation about why mm-hmm. the pipeline leaks um, and where it leaks. And we wanted to get people's, you know, own stories about this. And so... Mm-hmm. One way to do that would be to identify people who started graduate school mm-hmm. around when we did, mm-hmm. um, and we mm-hmm. use the fact that you know some of the programs that were a part of our study were our own programs. We use the fact that we you know mm-hmm. we knew these folks mm-hmm. um, to do this study, and we wanted to get like the long view of how people's careers had unfolded, and to include not just the people who stayed right. in the academy, but yeah. also people who, you know, leaked out, quote mm-hmm. unquote. Mm-hmm. I don't think the people who left the academy think of themselves as having right. leaked. <laughs> but from the perspective of being in the academy, yeah. like they're the people who were yeah. missing, who might have stayed in this profession and, and chose um, to do something else. And so why? Right. So, yeah, so that was kind of the idea was mm-hmm. to get the people who we don't run into at conferences mm-hmm. and talk to right. within the profession, because by definition, they've they've left and but and then also to compare their stories with the stories mm-hmm. of people who stayed in mm-hmm. and also to get some ideas of the challenges people who stayed in faced and whether there were big gender differences mm-hmm. and 
to kind of flesh out mm -hmm. the real human stories behind mm -hmm. what we know from the numbers. Yeah. So what are the one or two biggest disparities that you see from that report that contributes to the leak? So I think there was a general sense, and it's hard, you know, it's a relatively yeah. small number right. of people, so it's a little bit idiosyncratic, but mm -hmm. a kind of general and diffuse sense among women and exacerbated for women and minorities mm -hmm. um, that the kind of what we would refer to as a chilly climate or mm -hmm. lack of support, right? The people mm -hmm. didn't feel like they fit. They didn't feel like they got great mentoring. They didn't feel like... They kind of, it always felt like an uphill battle. Right. Uh, I think that kind of came through in the stories. And again, not everybody, right? right. Uh, you know, not all right. men felt like everything was great, and not right. all women felt like everything was awful, but there was a general tendency in that direction. Mm -hmm. And then I think issues of balancing, you know, career mm -hmm. with partners, mm -hmm. children, taking care of elderly mm -hmm. parents, um, all of that that, you know, tended to fall more on women, and, and women are much more likely to be in two-career couples. So mm -hmm. the problem within academia that you don't get to decide what city you're going to live in, right. what place you're going to live in, and then find a job, you have to follow where the jobs are. That's really hard if you're in a two-career family, and that's really hard on men who are in two-career families, right. but more you know, women academics are in two-career families than male academics. So, mm -hmm. and, and we kind of knew that, mm -hmm. you know, but, but seeing how that played out for people of mm -hmm. the choices that they had when they were on the job market or they mm -hmm. went someplace where they were then in a long-distance relationship and how people made the choices to try to make that work and whether that worked or not and the toll that took, all those kinds of things kind of come out in the stories. Okay. So did you discover something from participating on the task force that you did not already know? Um, no, there wasn't anything that was a total surprise. Right. Uh, it was more confirming and sometimes not confirming, right? Some things like weren't as stark that, you know, mm -hmm. I think maybe as somebody who's been active on these issues mm -hmm. within academia, it can start to feel like it's right. a starker problem or mm -hmm. a more universal kind mm -hmm. of set of problems. So, you know, mm -hmm. so that was good to get some reality check on all that. I think one of the things that was maybe m most surprising to me or most enlightening was the way people who had left academia mm -hmm. talked about it. Because again, those are the, you know, I'm an academic, I tend to talk professional stuff with other academics, right? So I get that side of the story mm -hmm. more and to hear, mm -hmm. you know, why people who left, left. Mm -hmm. And nobody said, like, this was a profession that was completely unwelcoming to women, and so I left. It was all much more subtle stuff, and mm -hmm. people made choices. And people were happy with the careers they went on to mm -hmm. and the, the choices they made, but sort of feeling like there had been this unwelcoming mm -hmm. um, atmosphere yeah. within academia. Yeah. Right. So you've traveled many places. You've been in a lot of dangerous mm -hmm. situations, perhaps, mm -hmm. uh, as we just mentioned, all over the world. But there seems to be one magical place that you keep going back to. <laughs> That's the state of Oregon. What is so magical? <laughs> Every when I, when people Oregon. look at her, where's, where's Paige? Where's She's Paige? In She's Portland. in Portland. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it is a pretty magical place. But uh, this is this is a two-career two right. family issue. So uh, my husband's an artist. Oh. Um, he makes oh. large sculpture. And oh, a lot so of what right. he does, he can do anywhere. Uh -huh. uh, he applies for projects and designs projects and that he can, uh -huh. you know, 
does from our apartment here mm-hmm. in Columbia Housing. But when he's actually building the projects, he oh. needs a big, you know, industrial shop space to because he builds really big, you know, up to thirty foot tall sculptures? moving sculptures. Yeah, oh, public yeah. art, so big. Great big thing. Oh. So he needs space, uh-huh. um, and he's from Portland, oh, uh, and okay. his fa- you know his family is there. We have good friends there right. that are his old friends. So we have this community there that I married into, mm-hmm. um, and so our kind of arrangement, which we're which mm-hmm. is not a compromise. We both feel right. we both really <laughs> love both places. Is that uh-huh. we spend the academic year when I'm teaching uh-huh. here in New York, uh-huh. and when summers and times when I'm on leave, if we're not off, you know, gallivanting around Sri right. Lanka or someplace, uh, we spend out in Portland so that he has access to his shop space there. Great. Now we have the story. Now that, we that's, know. that's why I'm bi-coastal. <laughs> yep. Right, right. Well, yeah. what a wonderful story. It seems like a beautiful place. It's great. And it's, and it's especially great in the summer, which is when we get to spend time there mostly. So, yeah, it's good. Well, thanks, Paige, for coming to the Dean's Table. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. The Dean's Table is produced by Ursula Sommer with production assistance from Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone and Ariana Sullivan. Our researchers are Emma Flaherty and Angeline Lee. Our logo is by Jessica Lillian. Our music is by Imperial. I'm Dean Harris. 